Amen. 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 <clears throat> hey, if you've got your Bibles, grab one and go to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're going to uh, start there, um, beginning in verse 24. Um, so glad to see so many of you here this morning. Um, I hope you are excited about today. Today could be epic in the life of our church. Um, <clears throat> but I just want to remind us of what Galatians 6.14 says. Far be it for me to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom was crucified for the world and the world unto me. And so, with this, this is going to be an epic day, all right? We're rolling out vision for the future. We're also going to gather uh, at the beach right after this service and baptize about 300 people. So, uh, amen, amen. So that's all cool, but it's all, it's all to God's glory. And, uh, and I'm glad to be back. I'm, I've been in Jamaica for two weeks. I want to thank Pastor Ryan Stone for, for holding it down here while I was out and preaching the last two weeks. He did an amazing job. And... Uh, and though, and though we are a going church, and I love to go on mission trips, um, I love coming home more. So I'm so glad to be home, and there's no other place I'd rather be than sharing God's Word with you. You're my favorite group of people to preach God's Word to, so thank you guys for being awesome, and I'm glad to be back. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 14, we've got a lot of work to do, and um, some people ask me, since we have the baptism, or am I going to cut this sermon short at 1122? I'll give you three guesses, all right? It'll be just under an hour. So dig in. Acts 14, beginning in 24. It says, and then they passed. The day, the day is uh, Paul and Barnabas. Remember last series? They've been traveling around on this. Uh, they've been on the road sharing the gospel all over the place. And all kind of different people are getting saved. Uh, Jews and Gentiles and pagans and religious people and church people and non-church people. All kind of different people are getting saved. So that's what that's talking about. Then they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled, verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This afternoon, that's what we are going to do. We're going to get out of here. We're going to get in our cars. All of us are going to Hannah Park. And go and park at the Dolphin Plaza, and there'll be a couple thousand of us there to do exactly what the Bible says right here, that we are going to gather the church together, and we are going to declare all that God has done with us, and how he opened a door of faith to those people that walk out into the water and profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then we will rejoice in that. Amen? I mean, this is an epic day. You ain't ready. Come on. We will rejoice in that. And it will be an epic day. And then we're going to sit around afterwards and eat fried chicken and hang out and just, you know, do that part of church too. Verse 28, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Acts 15, that's where we'll spend the most of our time. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And all the men said, do what? That was not in the brochure. We're going to have to go through this one more time. So <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas had been traveling around to all kinds of places. They would start in the synagogues, but they would also preach the gospel to whoever had ears to hear it. And there were people, that, Gentiles and Jewish people, that were surrendering their life to the Lordship of Christ. And then what began to happen is some men uh, from Judea, they were teaching, well, that's not enough. Putting your faith in Jesus is not enough. Not only, um, not only do you have to believe like us, but first you have to be like us. What they were teaching is that you've got to be Jewish 
before you become Christian. You've got to obey all the commandments before you could be a Christian. Now, here, here's what happens to so many of us. Um, when you put your faith in Christ, when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, uh, most of us tend to drift in one of two directions. There are some of us in the room that we drift towards license. Uh, we sort of cheapen the grace of God. We, we understand grace. We understand that Christ paid it all at the cross. And we say, well, if that's the truth, then I've got like a get out of hell free card and I can do whatever I want. I mean, I know First John 1, 9 says that, that if I confess my sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So here's what I'll do. I'll take my sin bucket and I'll go fill it up all week and I'll do whatever I want to do because I know I can come to the 1122 service and during that last song, you know, it's usually a little slower and the lights are dim and Gretchen's singing. And then I can just come down front and dump all my sin on the altar and he's already paid for it. And then I can go out during the week and do whatever I want to do. And people tend to drift in that direction. If that's you, um, you don't have a theology problem. You have a lordship issue. Jesus might not be your Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Grace is not a freedom to do whatever you want. Grace is not a freedom to sin against an almighty God. Grace is the freedom to walk in the life, this abundant life that he has called us to walk. That we are called to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of us tend to drift in that license kind of way. And now some of you are in the room going, you get him, Pastor. It's about time. I can't believe those wretched people would even... Well, your problem, black-hearted sinner, is probably that you're going to drift towards legalism. You, we have a, a lot of people have a tendency to drift towards legalism. where They go, well, yeah, I, I hear and appreciate the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus on the cross, but, but what Jesus did wasn't quite enough. I mean, it was enough to save me, but then I'm going to add to it. And what I'm going to add to it with is a list of do's and don'ts. And so I'm going to add some morality to what Christ did on the cross. We tend to drift towards this, towards this legalism. And, and in essence, what we say to God when we do that is, um, I appreciate you sending your only begotten son to die and suffer on a cross for my sin, but it wasn't quite enough to save me, so I'm going to help you out a little bit. Thank you very much, all right? I'm going to, I'm going to add some uh, not saying these words and not watching these kind of movies and voting this way. And if you put that together, that's when you get uh, the full expression of what a Christian is. And a lot of times we will come up with these kind of arbitrary lists of what a Christian looks like. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but those arbitrary lists look a lot like the author, don't they? So here's what a Christian looks like. <gasps> what do you know? It looks like me. And if you, um, if you don't obey my list or if I impose my list on you and you don't look like what's on my list, then you might not be a Christian. And essentially what we're doing there is we're drifting towards this legalism. We're adding things to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying it takes more than just faith in Christ to be saved. It actually takes, it takes more than that. And so what's happening in the first century, the list that the, these guys are coming up with, it was in the Old Testament. They're saying it's not enough to just believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but there's some things that you have to do. And of all the things they want to pick out, they're going to go with circumcision, right? That's kind of a big deal. So in the first century, the new believers class, it was all women, right? The guys are going, hey, I love Jesus and your church is cool, but I believe I'm going fishing this weekend, all right? I ain't going to the new members class. And so, and so this, this, problem, this problem arises in the first century church. And not only do individuals have a tendency to drift one way or the other, but organizations also have this kind of drift. That every organization has a drift towards complexity, not simplicity. 
I mean, every, every, the businesses that you start or that you work for and every church, we, they, they typically start out with a clear mission and a clear vision. But over time, they don't get more focused on those visions and missions. What tends to happen is uh, some human tradition, some, some drift begins to happen, and things get more and more complex. And it can happen in the church, too. That the church starts out, the disciples start out just proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and now they're not even one generation in, and you've got this complexity of a group saying, no, you've got to be like one of us before you can believe like one of us. In other words, what they're trying to teach is um, you have to act right to be righteous before God. And so what the gospel is, is no, no, your righteousness was purchased for you by Christ's right action on the cross. And so here's the thing that they're going to have to deal with. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And see, you think it was tough to join our church. Do you know we don't require any surgery at all to become a member <laughs> of our church? Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's the nice Bible way of saying Paul and Barnabas chew them out. Paul and Barnabas are great. Probably not Barnabas. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. Barnabas is kind of a sensitive guy. His name means son of encouragement. He was probably like, guys, can't we just circle up and pray? But Paul, Paul's a former terrorist, and a part of that never went away. So you know, Paul is like, what is wrong with you, wretched, black-hearted sinner? This is evidence that you don't know the gospel. Were you not there when Christ was crucified on that tree? Do you not believe that that was enough? It's the life, death, and resurrection. Not Jesus plus anything, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. How dare you? That's what no small dissension and debate means in the Bible. So he's fussing at him and cussing at him, and like Christian cuss words, not real cuss words. And then he says, so after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So what we're going to get in Acts 15 is the very first church business meeting. Because the church is notorious for getting together to vote on whether God can do what God's already been doing, right? So God's been moving and saving people all over the place. And now the church in Acts 15, they're going to get together and discuss and debate whether God has permission to to do it or not. Verse 3, so, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers, verse 4. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And again, what what this is, is this is just evidence of the church, the first century church, drifting off its original mission. I mean, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. Not, not to make everybody Jewish, but to forgive everyone's sins. That was his mission. And now, here are some church people, some, some hyper-religious, pharisaical Christians <clears throat> who are going to add to this, this kind of set of do's and don'ts. And I've told you several times before, I didn't, um, my family didn't really grow up in church. We, we grew up believing in God. We were from the South. Who doesn't believe in God in the South, right? We believed in, in God and NASCAR and college football. But we also believed that the fish bite on Sunday, so we went fishing. And, and the few times that we would go to church, it was a great church. They loved Jesus and taught the Bible. But, but we would kind of hear this message, God is good, you are bad, try harder. And, and sort of the list that they laid out for us was, uh, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. Now again, I'm from Dillon, so they all chewed. So we thought, well, you can't get a girl then if you're going to be a Christian. And so they would add this sort of superficial list over 
and above the gospel. And it was about how good are you. It was a works-based righteousness. That's what's happening here in the first century. That, that they're saying it's not enough to just believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But you've got to not only be circumcised, but you, you've got to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stands up and he says to them. Now, what's going to happen is, uh, again, they're arguing or they're having this church business meeting over what theologians would call soteriology. It means the study of salvation. What does it take to be saved? How do you get into heaven? However you want to ask it. And so the Pharisees, the Christian Pharisees are saying, there's some things that you have to do in order to get in. And then... Three of the big wigs in the first century church are going to talk. One's Peter. Peter was like the head disciple. Remember, he's the guy. Peter means rock. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's that guy. He's the walk-on-water guy. He's the chop-off-the-guy's-ear guy. That's this guy, all right? Kind of a big deal. Uh, the second guy that's going to talk is going to be Paul, the guy that's been on the road and has been sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel all over the place. I love Paul. Paul gets together with the apostles early and says, okay, we're going to reach the world for Christ. Here's how we'll do it. Y'all take Jerusalem, I'll take the rest of the world. Okay, so I love Paul. Paul's kind of my guy. And then the last one is James. James is going to, he's going to answer a question too. And Peter's going to answer the question theologically, and we'll look at how he answers. Um, Paul's going to answer the question experientially. Is there any empirical evidence to back up the theology that we believe? And then lastly, James is going to answer the question philosophically. And so here we go. We're going to start with Peter. In verse 7, he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We'll stop right there just for a second. So Peter wants the folks here to know that there are some non-Jewish people who aren't practicing any of the moral uh, laws of the Old Testament, and God saved them too by His grace. And their hearts have been cleansed just like our hearts have been cleansed, not by our good works, but by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? There's two very important aspects of that verse. One, Peter wants you to know that that God came to seek and to save the lost. And that when Christ went to the cross, he paid the full price. He paid for all of our sin. He endured the full wrath of a just and sovereign God on the cross so that we could be imputed with his righteousness. And if you try to add anything to that, if you say, no, 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 it's not enough to believe, you have to believe and you have to, and you add anything to that, uh, Peter wants the church to know that you are in essence, testing God. And what that, that Greek word test there means, you are opposing God. It, it, it means there's like two teams and you ain't on God's team. If you add anything to the gospel, you are opposed to the good news of God. And not only that, not only that, he says, and, and who do you think you are? You can't even keep the law. Why would you hang that yoke on their neck and, and we nor our fathers have been able to keep the law? That there's not a person in the room that's lived a righteous and perfect life. There's not a person in the room that can even keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the, the other 600, those weird ones about don't live next to brackish water and don't shave your sideburns. I mean, we can't get those right. We can't even get the top ten right. To which one Pharisee probably said, well, actually, I have obeyed all the commandments. Peter would go, you're a liar. And that's one of the commandments that you're breaking in saying that you're keeping all the commandments, liar, black-hearted sinner. See, 
evidence right there that none of us can obey it. So who do we think we are? How hypocritical is it for, for us to say, all right, we grew up, you know, we grew up in Hebrew school. We grew up with the Torah. We grew up with the Shema. We grew up with great Jewish parents to teach us about Moses. We went to the, we went to the temple. We did all those things. And we couldn't even do the right things before God. So why in the world do we think we could hold these, these people brand new to the faith to, to be able to act right? Verse 11. He says, but, he's going to lay out the gospel in one sentence. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, just make sure you get this part. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there's nothing else. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood as the substitutionary atoning death for you and for me. That we have earned, that we have earned death because we are sinners. That we are wretched, black-hearted sinners. We choose sin daily. And when we sin, we slap the face of an almighty God. But Christ loved us so much. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, his only begotten son, to endure the full wrath of God on that cross that we could be made his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. I think I quote it every week. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. That we don't act right to become righteous before God, but we were made or imputed with his righteousness. What he did on the cross, we get the credit for. And the sin that we have done, he took the responsibility for. And that is the gospel. And no matter what you've done, listen to this. No matter what you've done or who you are, no one is disqualified from the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ that's demonstrated on the cross. No one. And I've met people in this room, and you come down and you say, well, God can't save me. God can't forgive me because you don't know my sin. I'm like, well, I I don't know your sin. You're right. But I bet it doesn't compete with some of the sins listed here in the Bible. All right? If you think God's not big enough to save you, then you don't know my God. Let me introduce you to King David, okay? King David, the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart, that God created in him a right spirit, a clean heart. Guess what David did? David, um, not only did he commit adultery, but he killed the husband of the woman that he was committing adultery with. The Bible story sort of goes like this. Like, this was, this was pre-internet, so you couldn't just internet porn. You had to go find the real thing. So he's out on his, it, it doesn't say it exactly that way, but just loose translation, right? <laughs> he's up on his roof one day looking around and sees Bathsheba bathing naked. And he's like, all right. And so he sends one of his people to go bring her to him. And then, and then they have an affair. And then he knocks her up. Again, it's a loose translation of Hebrew. But he knocks her up, so she's pregnant. Brings her husband in to sleep with her so they won't know and they can't do a paternity tests. You know, there's no Jerry Springer then. So uh, they, but he won't because he's like a good soldier. And so, so he has him killed. And he's the king of Israel. And he's surrendered his life to the Lord. And so if you were to come down here and say, hey, look, pastor, uh, or what if David was here? What if you could go to David? David, you don't know what I've done. And he's go- he would go, have you, have you impregnated someone that wasn't your wife and then killed their husband? Uh, no, I lied on my taxes. Away from me, you JV sinner, okay? You got nothing on me. You see, the gospel is that no one's disqualified. And for those of you that grew up in the church for a long time and go, that's not fair. Praise God, fairness is not a biblical value. But grace and mercy and forgiveness are. Fairness ended in the, in the Garden of Eden. And through the cross, we get grace and mercy and forgiveness. 
Now, I'm not trying to make light of sin, okay? Sin is atrocious. Sin, sin is a slap in the face of an almighty God. When I sin, it is so bad. It is so infinitely bad that someone had to die for it. For the wages of sin is death. But yet God's love is so big. Not only is he just, but he's the justifier. His love is so big that he would pay for that sin. My sin and your sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. And his love is so big that he decided to be the someone. So that we could be given the free gift of eternal life. So that's what Peter lays out for them. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So in other words, regardless of circumcision or any other law you want to add to it, that does not, that does not add to your salvation. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, like you did. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, Paul, he gets them together and he says, okay, you've heard the theology, the gospel from Peter. And yes and amen, that's true. And I want to take that gospel and I want to give you some empirical evidence. So Paul begins to share stories about how men and women got saved by believing in Jesus, not by following the Old Testament law. And I bet he brings in some of them. Exhibit A, what are you going to do with this guy? All right, he's a Gentile, a pork-eating Gentile, all right? And he's filled with the same Holy Spirit that you you are and that I'm filled with. So what are you going to do with him? By the way, it's why I want you to go on a mission trip. It's because it's one thing to believe that we're supposed to love God and love the world and serve the least of these. And then it's another when that theology has a face to it. All right, it's it's just all together. It's a whole different level. And so that's what Paul is doing here. So if Peter answers the question theologically, then Paul answers it experientially. And then verse 13. And after they had finished speaking, James replied. Now I've got to tell you about James. Anytime I bring up James, I've got to bring up this point. And here's why. I know there's some skeptics in the room. Okay, I get it. But, but just check this out. James is the brother of Jesus. So James, later in life, surrenders his life to the lordship of his brother, Jesus. Now, I've got a brother, all right? And so the reason this is so remarkable to me is if my brother were to come to me and say, Behold, Joby, I bring you good news. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, you're a son of something, but it ain't God, okay? And here's how I know, because I grew up with you. And you can't be God. I know, because when you were in the first grade, you took a BB gun and you shut out all the windows in our neighbor's house. Not one, all of them. And then when they came and told our parents, I remember my dad going to you and saying, but Russ, if you accidentally shot one, you should have come and told us. And he said, I didn't do it accidentally. I aimed right at him and shut out all the windows. So when you shoot out all the windows of your neighbor's house, you don't grow up to be the Messiah you grow up to be the firearms instructor of the SWAT team, which is what he is. So that's how it kind of works out, right? Which is cool. It's cool, but you ain't God. Everybody tracking with me? So imagine what would have to happen if your brother came to you and said, I have come for the forgiveness of sin of all mankind. I am the Lamb of God. And yet, you know what James did? James, at later in his life, after the resurrection of Jesus... He says, you know what? I think my brother is who he said he was. And he surrenders his life to the lordship of Jesus. And here's what he says. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree. 
just as it is written. And now what he's going to do is what any good preacher ought to do. He's going to go to the text. And he goes back to Amos chapter 9. Amos was a prophet of God. And so Amos would literally speak on God's behalf. The Spirit of God would speak through the prophet of God to the people of God. And so James is going to go back, and not only is he going to agree with the theology of Peter and the empirical evidence of Paul, he's going to go back to the authority of the Word of God, and he's going to quote Amos chapter 9. It says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. You're going to want to underline those two lines there. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. I need to see some underlining. Get out a pen, underline it, all right? I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. And then he closes up Amos 9, and then here's the conclusion. Verse 19, therefore... It is my judgment. Again, this is James. Therefore, it is my judgment, based on the gospel that Peter laid out, based on the the empirical evidence of these men and women that are being saved by the gospel, based on the authority of the word of God, this is the decision that the church is going to make about how people get saved. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I love the way the New International Version uh, translates this verse. It says, why would we make it difficult, those who are coming to God? Now think about this for a second. Remember, early on we said there's so many organizations that begin to drift off of mission and vision. Do you think that when Jesus instituted the ecclesia, this movement of God, built upon the public proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, when he did that in Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago, do you think he ever for one minute thought that that very organization that was called to get together to proclaim the name of Jesus oftentimes could be the thing that keeps people from meeting him? You see, we at the Church of 1122, we believe that the church should be an on-ramp to salvation, not a roadblock that we should not make it difficult for those people that God is drawing unto himself, that we should not cause trouble for those people that God is drawing unto himself. And so, like I've said before, going to church early in life, um, one of the reasons that that we didn't go that much, and and one of the reasons when I was in in college and, and would lead my fraternity brothers to Christ and try to get them to church with me, and they would say things, I'd hear it all the time. They'd go, well, I'd love to come to church with you, but I don't have church clothes. I mean, just think about the idea of church clothes. I mean, do you think that Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, shedding his blood for the salvation of all humankind? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Lord, please bless them with a pleated docker. No! No! I mean, it's just crazy that we came up with like a dress code for church. In fact, at, my, at the first church that, that, uh, that I was ordained at, and first job was a Baptist church. I went to a Baptist seminary, you know. Uh, I don't know why. Just, that's how I grew up. And I remember when they offered me the job to be the youth pastor there, I was stoked, yeah. And then they, they called me up, and they said, um, hey, so what size robe are you? And I was like, well, I, don't, I usually just go towel. I don't really do robe. But if you want to get me a robe, that's cool. I mean, I put my name on it or something. That'd be awesome. Be like Ric Flair. They're like, no, no, one Sunday a month, we wear robes in in the service. Now, again, if you grew up in a church and everybody's got on a robe, you just, it just makes sense. It just looks normal, right? I didn't grow up in the church. So 
I, I was like, I, extra large, I guess. I don't know. I've never put one on. It's a graduation, you know. I've been with a guy in the room with a robe on, but that's kind of it from my testimony years. That's something different. But I've, I've never been the guy with the robe on. And so they get my first robe and put it on. It's got some things here. It's got this little hood thing on the back. It's, and then in the first service, I couldn't even like worship. You know why? I felt like Harry Potter. I mean, the whole time I just thought, boom, 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 like I was going to do spells on somebody. And so I wouldn't let any of my friends come to my church the first Sunday of the month because all my friends would make fun of me. Joby's in a dress. Joby's in a dress. Wow, cast a spell on you. So it's terrible. So we don't do robes here. Now, now again, if, if you grew up in a tradition that has robes, it makes so much sense to you, and you think I don't look like a preacher, praise God. Thank you very much, all right? I don't want to look like a preacher, ever. And so, and, and, and originally, you know where robes came from? Uh, when robes first started being worn in the church, it was so that everybody in the congregation would get a robe on the way in, and everybody would be the same. That the, le- the ground at the foot of the cross was level. And so they didn't want the rich guy in the suit and the poor farmer next to him to feel different, so they put everybody in a robe. And then over time, it began to drift, and now only the, the holy ones up front. We get the robes, and all you commoners don't, all right? And then I- I've been to traditions, you know, where they get the cool hats, man, and you're trying to figure out, like, is it like the, the, the closer the hat is to heaven, the closer to God you are? I mean, I don't understand and again, if you grew up in that tradition, it's cool, right? If you see the guy walk in with the right colored hat and, you know, the right, they have like props and stuff. If he's got the right prop and the right hat, you're like, oh, it's a big Sunday. The bishop's here. But if you don't know what that is, you think, I feel like I'm at a Star Wars convention. What is going on? <laughs> well, it's just, it, it, so what, what we do is we don't have a dress code. We're a movement for all people, all kind of people. Dressed up people, not dressed up people. Flip-flop people, penny loafer people. Whatever, whatever kind of people you are, we're a movement for all kind of people. And we just believe that the church should be an on-ramp to a relationship with the Lord and not a roadblock. And there's a lot of roadblocks. I mean, it's, it's not just funny stuff like, like dress codes, but, but there's all kind of secret kind of handshake sort of stuff. If you don't pay attention... Very quickly, the church can just be about taking care of itself as opposed to being on mission. Have you ever been to a, a church and you didn't grow up in that tradition, and then all of a sudden, everybody pops up and starts singing the same song? And you think, I don't know the words to this. What am I? I don't know. I mean, I, in the Baptist church, we would sing the doxology every week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we'd sing kind of weird, you know. Praise Him, all creatures. And I found out in the last service that one of my friends sang that song for 40 years in church, and until he saw it printed, he, he thought, he thought it, saw, it said, praise all creatures, here we go. Because they, they sang it at the end of the Presbyterian service. So he's like, all right, we're about to go. Here we go. He thought that's what they were singing. They weren't even doing it right. All right, so, again, traditions are great if you grew up in that tradition. But if you don't, what happens? It can cause trouble. It can, be, it can, it can just cause trouble. If you've ever taken communion at a different kind of church, you know, than the one you grew up in. It's why when we do anything like that, if we're ever going to do a creed or have you respond, we try to explain it to you. We have an appreciation uh, for the history of the church. We certainly do. But, but we are not just into, into uh, kind of empty traditions just for traditionalism's sake. But, you know, I've done communion before. I was at an Episcopalian funeral one time, and it was awesome. I mean, it was incredible. They had, like, the robes and the hats and the staffs and the thing and the smoke. And I'm like, man, it was like a ZZ Top concert. It was awesome. There's just stuff everywhere. 
And it was new to me, and I didn't know what was going on, but it was, it was cool. And then, and then it occurred to me, oh, this is, this is Episcopalian. We're going to all do communion here in a minute. And I started getting nervous. And the reason I was getting nervous is because I, I know church. I mean, it's all I've ever done is work in church, got a degree in seminary. I've done this stuff. But we do this kind of church. So when everybody just starts popping up and going down to do communion, nobody gave me any instruction. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to screw up communion. Wouldn't that be great? Well, the pastor eleven twenty two doesn't even know how to take communion right. And so I'm nervous, and I'm looking, and I'm reading through the bulletin, and there's not any instruction. And then I look down my row. First, you've got to come up. You gotta, everybody's got to kneel down, and that poor fellow's got to bend over to every person. I thought, man, I ought to build the stage lower. All right, poor old guy. can't hardly get down here. And he's handing stuff out to everybody, and I'm trying to listen to what they're saying because they're saying something, but I can't hear the magic, you know, the response. And, uh, and, then, and then everybody on my row, they're drinking out of the same cup. And I'm like, Jesus, I love you and everything, but I am not. I mean, I saw a little slobber bridge from that old fellow next to me, and I am not putting my mouth on that. And then I find out, do you know you could tap out? You can just get in and be like, I'm out, tap, tap. And they're like, and you even get a better thing. You get like a whole little single-serving message just to you. But nobody told me. And, and here's the thing. I know it wasn't, it's nobody's intention. Nobody ever started out the church and said, one day, we're just going to be for this kind of believer, right? We're going to have our own traditions. We're going to stand up, turn around, shake hands, high five, and then sit down. We're not going to tell anybody we're going to do it. No, it just begins to drift. So what, what starts out as like a life-saving mission in a life-saving vessel you don't pay very close attention, very quickly, it, it's just a cruise ship. And it's just all about taking care of the people that are on the ship. And it still looks like a life-saving boat, you know, and there's some, there's some uh, buoys and there's some life-saving kind of things around, but, but, but they're off mission. And we don't want to be that kind of church. We, we want to consistently come back here to what James says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. There's a lot of more troubling things too, like judgmentalism and arrogance and attitude and pride and we're the best thing in town. I hope that's not us either. That we just want to be faithful to the mission God has called us to. And the mission that God has called us to as the church of 1122 is that we are a gospel-centered movement for all people, all kind of people. And we hope two things happen, that people discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that doesn't, I, I fundamentally disagree that the church has to decide, if, are you going to keep people or reach people? I think we do both. I think we, people are saved by grace, the gospel saves, and the gospel disciples. Look, if Shrek can do it, right? How many of you parents, you've been watching Shrek with your kid, and they're laughing at one part, and you're laughing at one part, and you're going, hey, is Shrek for adults or children? Hmm, well, if Shrek can do it for both people, can't the Holy Spirit? So we believe that in this room right now, you could be brand new to Bible study, you could be brand new to church, you don't know anything about church, or even worse, maybe you've got a bad taste in your mouth about church, and we believe that you could be here right now, and we could preach and teach and explain the Word of God in such a way that you can understand by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, right next to you could be sitting somebody that's been a Christian for a long time. They were like in Sunday school with Moses, you know, been around for a while. But we could still open up the Word of God, go verse by verse through the book of Acts, and trust the Holy Spirit to just nurture and water that seed that lands on fertile soil. I don't believe you have to do either or. I think we can do both right here in this place, that we will be a church that reaches people and is a disciple-making disciple church. Amen? Amen? All right, well, that's what we're here to do. So we don't think <clears throat> that, that the thing that, that, that is keeping people from Jesus at this church are things like dress code and bad music and, you know, those kinds of things. 
But we are making trouble for people who are coming to the Lord. And um, this sounds really harsh. Do you know what, you know what our, our number one problem is? It's all of you. <laughs> and I mean it in the best way possible. I really do. Not you individually. But just there's so many of us. There's so many of us. There are three big lids that will stop a church from growing. And again, let me just reiterate. I was not trying to start a big church. We were just trying to make disciples and glorify God and worship and word. And then you keep just bringing everybody and praise God. We want to make room for as many of us as we can. We do because there are people in your life that you love like crazy. That you love like crazy. And the idea of them spending eternity separated from God just crushes your heart and mine. And so that's why we want this place to be an on-ramp and not a roadblock. But here are the three biggies that will shut down a church from growing. One is, and they're not very spiritual, they're just true. Uh, one is, is if you run out of parking. If you run out of parking. Can you believe that we have parking issues with that parking lot that we have? I remember when we first came in this place and said, we're going to put a church in this old Walmart, and we looked at that parking lot, and we thought, dun 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 you know? If you build it, they will come. And we thought, man, we could park people forever. And you want to talk about the favor of God upon us? Of, of all the neighbors in the entire world, who do we get as our neighbors? Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby's so Christian, they make Chick-fil-A look pagan. You know what I mean? I mean, they are like, they're amazing. And I love Chick-fil-A too. We love them all. But they're closed on Sundays. If, they need, if that was a regular store and, and they had to have half the parking lot over there, we'd be in trouble. You know what else? You know how else we've been favored? The other anchor store in this strip center is the Winn-Dixie. And if the beef people had a store there, guess what? We'd be in trouble if they needed all of that. And so, praise God, we've got parking to fill up, you know, this room. But if that ever, if that were to become a problem, then I'm telling you, it's hard to show up to church if you don't have anywhere to park. Secondly, the second thing um, that can shut you down, stop you growing, is if you don't have open seats at optimal times. I don't know what our numbers are this weekend so far, but they are 4,000 people this weekend are at Church of 1122, okay? That's crazy. Is that the new high? Oh, well, there you go. Great weekend to talk about it. So this weekend, over three services, we have about 4,000 people showing up. Here's the thing. Um, at, at our 9 o'clock service and at our 1122 service, the room is 80% full. Uh, now, we had about 2,000 people at the 9 o'clock service because those people are, you know, ready to get lathered up and go out to the baptism. But, but every week, we run about 80% full in this room, which means there should be enough seats, it would seem like. The problem is people don't sit together, Right? You see, especially two dudes. The two guys walk down the aisle together, and, uh, and they see each other. They're like, hey, we've got to leave that one buffer seat, right? All right, Amy, it's just in the man rule book. You just have to. Well, the problem is then a family of three comes in, and they can't sit together. And so one of the things that will shut down the growth of a church is if you don't have anywhere to sit during optimal hours. Now, we are going to launch new services at the end of this summer. We're going to do a Sunday afternoon service. We're going to ask a few hundred of you to move to the Sunday afternoon service. Um, it'll be very family-friendly, and, and, but we know that God, well, we believe that God will fill this room back up uh, once a few hundred of you go to the Sunday afternoon service. But, but if you don't have seats in optimal hours, it's just hard to bring people. And then the third one, and this is a big one for us, if you run out of kid space, if you run out of kid space, it's hard to come to church if you, got, if you don't have anywhere to put your children. And every week, this morning at the 9 o'clock service, we were turning families away because all of the two-year-old and under classrooms were beyond capacity. 
And a part of the reason we think that is is because about three years ago, I taught uh, verse by verse through the Song of Solomon. And the Bible says in James, be ye not merely hearers of the word and so deceive yourself, but go and do what it says. So praise God, you are an active bunch and uh, just doing what the word says. And so this place is full of two and unders. And so the three, we got three big lids here at the church of 1122. And we do not want to be the limiting factor to what God wants to do in this church. And so with all of those things in mind, the big idea for the Restore Project and for today's sermon is this. In order to not make trouble for those coming to the Lord, it's time for us to rebuild a building as God continues to restore his people. As I was looking through the text, when Amos says, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, it became, it became abundantly clear to me. And then as I began to pray with it with our elders and our staff and our deacons, it became abundantly clear to us all that it was time to rebuild a building as God continues to restore men, women, and children unto himself. And so behind this wall is our offices. We have six offices for 25 people right now. So you can imagine the fun that is Monday through Friday. And then beyond that wall is about 25,000 unfinished Walmart space, just unfinished Walmart space. And so what we're going to do in this restore project is we're going to raise the money and we're going to rebuild the old Walmart as God continues to restore men and women unto himself. And I love this word restore. Because we are going to restore an old store that used to be about, about diapers and dog food. And we are going to rebuild that empty Walmart. It looks like the end of a Terminator 2 movie right now. But we're going to clean that thing out and we are going to rebuild it. Why? Because God has been doing some amazing stuff in this place. And we do not want to be the limiting factor. Now, we can't make God do anything, but we believe if we step out in faith and we step out in obedience that God will continue to do what he's been doing and what he has been doing. He's been on this restoration mission in our church. People's families have been restored. God's been restoring marriages. God's been restoring dignity. God's been restoring hope. God's been restoring finances. God's been restoring forgiveness. God's been restoring a relationship between a heavenly father and his lost children. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to raise some money, and we're going to build out in the back uh, some brand new space so that God continues to do what he has been doing. I want to show you some pictures of it. If you'll grab this uh, piece of curriculum that's right here in front of you, there is a picture on the back that, that lays out what we're going to do. You'll see in the bottom there, see those green, that green part that says staff office build out, like I just said? Um, We've got about 25 or 26 staff members, and we've got six offices for us right now. Um, the average church of 3,000 or more has about 56 people on staff. We have about 25 or 26. The reason we can do that is really, it's two reasons. One is we run a pretty lean ministry, right? We just do gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered groups, gospel-centered serving. There's not a lot of other stuff. You know, we don't have a latte ministry and some of those other things, so it's able to keep our staff costs down, um, but, but also, the real big reason is because of our serve staff. You know, we have over 700 people that have volunteered to be a part of our serve staff. And because of your faithfulness, we are able to run a much leaner budget and, and do things like we'll talk about next week, plant churches and support church plants and sponsor children and all those kind of things. But even with that in mind, we need to build out some more staff offices. The reason is people lead people to Jesus. Not programs, not buildings, but people lead people to Jesus. And we will be onboarding more staff in the next year or so. If you look in the top right, you'll see a worship center overflow and chapel build out. You see, again, like I said, is that we've got to have seats at optimal hours. 
And if we're going to continue to grow like we have this weekend to be at 4,000 people here to worship God, then we've got to have a place to put them. And so we're going to put about a 500-seat worship auditorium um, back here in the back. And it will look exactly like this room, just a miniature version. It will have a connect center and all that same stuff. Another thing that will happen in that space is that will be the space where we do weddings and funerals. Because one of the things that we want to be is your church family. And when your family walks through some of those milestones, whether it's a, you know, it's a, it's a wedding or it's a funeral, then we would, be, we would like to be equipped to be able to host those things for you. One of the things that some of us on staff have talked about, one of the deacons mentioned it to me. She walked up to me and said, hey, just imagine some of our kids could get married right here in this chapel. And I kind of wanted to throw up a little bit, scare me, but it's the truth. And so that'll be a part of it. And then, like, really, really, the jewel of the whole thing is the new-gen ministry build-out. We're going to more than double the size of, size of our kids' space. Amen? That's, it's so important for us. I got a 7-year-old and a 3-year-old. Um, we don't do babysitting here. We do gospel-centered children's ministry. And our children, they love to be here. They love to bring their friends. And isn't it great, isn't it great, isn't it great that you don't have to drag your kid to church? But for many of you, your kid's been dragging you. My son gets up early almost every Sunday morning. I leave early to come here, you know, before 7. And we can't get him up for first grade. But, man, he is up and ready and saying, Daddy, I want to go to church with you. And so as we're out of room in our new gen space, we're going to more than double that space. And that's part of what we're going to do in the Restore Project. So here's what I need from you. Number one, I need you to pray like crazy. I mean, I need, we, we got to be praying about this church we got to be praying about this. We are not trying to build six flags over Jesus. That is not the point. But what we are trying to do is we do not want to be the limiting factor on what God has in store for us. And yes, we'll, be, we'll, we'll launch new sites and we'll plant more churches and we're going to do all those kinds of things. But we must build out home base right here so that, that we are well equipped um, to, be the kind of, to be the kind of ministry center that God has in store for us. So be praying. Secondly, is you need to thank and upon this rock steward. What I mean by that is this, that when we were at Beach United Methodist, when, when 1122 was a service under the covering of Beach UMC, that, that we started together, Pastor Jerry and I and our staff, we were all one church, everything was together, and we together as one did one capital campaign to get into this, and it was called the Upon This Rock Capital Campaign. And it was to do two things, it was launch Church 1122 and it was to relaunch Beach UMC. Two weeks from now, we're going to share with you all the miraculous things God has been doing at Beach since they launched us. And we're just going to thank them like crazy. Um, but, but 600 families raised $6 million over three years to build this place and to relaunch Beach. Now, something that's cool there, and just very rough numbers, about 450 of those families are 1122 families. And those 1122 families pledged about $5 million over the three years. And of that $5 million, our church, Church of 1122, spent about $4 million of it. And so what would you do with the other? It's about between $900,000 and $1 million. What we will do over the next three years is give that back to Beach as a big, fat thank you, thank you, thank you for, for you covering us and for you letting us grow up under your roof and under your leadership and under your covering. Because just know this, if there's no Pastor Jerry Sweat and if there's no Beach UMC, then there would never be a church of 1122. So it is just a, it is just a thank you offering back to that church. Amen? And so that's what we do through the Upon This Rock campaign. Now, if you gave to the Upon This Rock campaign to 
build this, then thank you, thank you, thank you. Then you just get to pray like crazy for the Restore Project. And maybe would you just be an ambassador to all the new people to tell them uh, it's worth the investment. Because of you upon this rock, folks, uh, God used your generosity. Since we opened the doors here, September 23rd of last year, 563 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for the very first time. Amen? And so, be an ambassador and share it with the, all the new folks. So here's, here's what we're going to do. The last, last little thing we're going to do is kind of the big, it's a really big one. We want all the rest of you, if you, didn't, if you weren't a part of the Upon This Rock campaign, we want you to give cheerfully and generously to God's expanding work in and through the Church of 1122. So between now and the end of this year, we're going to raise $2.4 million over the next six months. $2.4 million for this Restore project as God continues to restore people unto himself. We're going to build out exactly what we showed you today, and we'll be ready to open the doors on this deal this fall. The reason we want to do it now and the reason we're so aggressive about it is because last year, in Jan- this past year in January, remember when all of a sudden there was like 1,000 new 1122ers? Well, we want to be ready this next January as God continues to send us waves of people in his name and for his glory. And so what that means is if you'll grab, you can either grab your bulletin or this, uh, the, the Restore Project stuff, either one. But if you grab your bulletin in the bottom right corner, there's a commitment card that you can tear away. And right there on it, it's just got your first name, last name, your contact information. And you fill this thing out and then you pray like crazy. Dear God, what would you have our family invest in the Restore Project? And this is for upfront, one-time gifts, but it's also for what can you give over six months. Now, let me tell you, if some of you are going, well, that's why I don't come to church, because all you ever talk about is money, then don't give. Oh, my goodness, please don't give. The Bible says do not give under compulsion. So don't, 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 don't. And then somewhere in your world, check your heart that something in this world has a hold of your heart, and I pray that you'll be released from it. And, and, if, and if you're like, well, I'm not giving to you, I don't trust you. I don't blame you. But please, be generous somewhere, okay? If you haven't plugged in here yet, if you don't know us yet, that's fine. You get a pass. We're not talking to you. But if you were a part of the over 2,500 new people um, that aren't a part of the Upon This Rock, then it's your turn. It's your turn to invest in what God is doing and has been doing. And so you'll fill this out. And, and let me help you understand the Holy Spirit in your life a little bit. You're going to think of a number. And you'll be like, oh, I can do that easy. And then that's not the number. Because it ain't easy. Okay? This ought, to, this ought to sting a little. This is what we need. And some of you go, well, isn't that aggressive $2.4 million in six months? Hi, I'm Joby. If we met, we do aggressive. That's what we do. All right? And I believe at, if, if 600 families can, can give $6 million over three years, then I believe 3,000 people can come up with $2.4 million in six months. And so we're believing God like crazy, and we're hoping and praying that he will stir in you and stir generosity and that you would sow into this ministry. And then you would, get the, you would get the divine pleasure of reaping an amazing reward, knowing that you get to be a part of what generations and generations have prayed for. Revival right here in Jacksonville. And here's why, here's why it's urgent and here's why it's so important. This morning at the 9 o'clock service, I mean this morning at the 9 o'clock service, we had to shut down all the kids' space from 2 years old and under. So you know what that means? That means that this morning at about 7.30, some mom woke up and thought, you know what? We're going to go to church today. 
and she's got three kids and her husband's traveling and they've achieved everything that the American dream promised would fulfill them and it's not fulfilling them. And so they thought, you know what, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to try that 1122. I thought it was a surf company because of the bumper stickers and I realized it was a church. And so she starts trying to get her kids ready for church and, and she's got one little one like, you know, car seat size. She's got a two-year-old and she's got a little bit bigger one and she's try- she doesn't know about the fact that we don't do church clothes, and, but she doesn't know. So she's trying to get dresses and bows and pigtails. She's trying to get it all ready and she can't find a little man's khakis, you know, and he outgrew them since the last time they went to church. And, and even though she's trying to get here at nine o'clock, somebody told her that's when it starts. It's just almost impossible to get three little people like that ready on time because you get the first one ready and then you turn your back and then that one's dirty again. And you go, right. I thought I'd get an amen from the mamas. And so that's what's going on here. And so she's cussing and fussing and everybody's fighting and screaming, what are we going to? We're going to church. And she throws them into the swagger wagon and they come riding down San Pablo and she pulls in and she sees the sign, and she thinks, what in the world is going on in this parking lot today? And the closest spot she can find is all the way in the back, back there by the Winn-Dixie. And she thinks, that's okay. Uh, I'm a little bit late, but that, it won't be that big a deal. And so she scoops up the little one in the car seat, and she grabs the older one's hand, and she's trying to get this one to hold that one's hand. And she's like, hold her hand, you know. And, she's, and then the greeters say, hey, how you doing? Oh, just blessed. You know, she walks in like that. <laughs> but she don't feel blessed. She feels frazzled and frantic. What am I going to do if I could just... I could just get in there, and the door is open, and she feels the AC, and she thinks, oh, I made it. She walks up to the new gen desk this morning, and she's ready to check her kids in. She's never done it before. She's never been to a church where you had to check your kids in. You usually just drop them off with strangers in a little dirty room and thought, I'm not doing that anymore. But here, you know, it's nice rooms, lots of security. And she, meets, she goes eyeball to eyeball with one of our new gen serve staff. And with some pain in our staff's eyes, they look at her in her eyes, and they can see her pain, and they say, I am so sorry but all the two-year-old rooms and under are shut down. We are beyond capacity. And they, she tried, they try to explain it's because we value the safety of our kids and, you know, some, some legitimate things, but it, did, it just felt like rejection to that mom that morning. And so she scoops up her kids. And, and let me just say this. If you ever, if we, in the meantime, if we ever have to turn away families, just bring your babies in here. I'd rather have crying babies in church than them out of church, okay? Just bring them in here. We love them all. Just bring them in here. It's okay. I'll just preach louder, all right? It's fine. But this mom doesn't know that. She takes her three kids, and she walks all the way back out on the other side of the Winn-Dixie, and we have no idea, no idea the impact. And so why would we make trouble those who God is drawing unto himself? And so church, it's time for us to invest and to step in and to restore, to rebuild the back of this place as God continues to restore people unto himself. So take that card. You pray like crazy. If you're ready, if you and your family are ready to make your commitment today, then you just drop it in these buckets down front or any of our giving boxes around the side. If you need to take it home and pray over it for a week, amen. Please do. That would be great too. And then you'll have uh, actually the next two weeks you'll be able to turn those in um, as we... Try to be obedient to what God has called us to do. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we love you that you would decide by your grace to favor Church of 1122. God, we thank you and we praise you for the the things that will happen today. God, for the vision that you have laid out for us to rebuild as you continue to restore. God, we thank you and praise you for the hundreds that will proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they will enter and exit the baptism waters, God. And they'll come out different than they went in. But God, would you move in this place? God, would you soften our hearts? 
God, would you help us see past our own wants? And Lord, would you help us to see into the future of the future generations, God, that you want to reach through this church? God, may we be a generous church. May we cheerfully give. May we cheerfully sow into the ministry that you're blessing so much. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.